Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast mini-series Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, known as SIDSL at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to its elders, past, present, and those who will emerge as the future unfolds. The unfolding future is the central orientation of these podcasts, because at base our concern is what it is that we have to do today to get to a better tomorrow. And let me emphasise this notion of have to do. It's a clear signal that there are things that we must do in order to achieve a future that's better than the present. In essence, our ultimate quest must be to work towards a future that will be sustainable, both for us as human beings and for the rest of nature alike, under complex conditions of almost constant challenge from one source or another. So rather than being a mere catchphrase that tries to indicate some sort of vague aspiration or ill-defined hope that things will simply improve one way or another, getting to better is an imperative. There's a host of things that we currently do in and to this world of ours that we need to transform if sustainable futures are to be ensured. And all the evidence suggests that these transformations will need to involve us working with each other. We'll only get to better if we approach this task together. Paradoxically, however, as soon as we embrace this idea of working collectively, of collaborating, we introduce a whole new level of complexity, not least because we seem to disagree about what needs to be transformed in the search for betterment as much as we agree. So what to do? There are few people better equipped or more experienced to explain and explore these unbelievably mixed up matters than my guest today. Distinguished Professor Cynthia Mitchell has spent literally decades working all of these working on all of these extremely difficult matters through her outstanding research and profoundly influential leadership positions, particularly in the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney. Her brilliant contributions to collaboration between universities, governments and industry present a wonderful living example of getting to better together. So it's a real thrill for me to welcome you, Cynthia. Thank you, Richard. It's a thrill for me to be here. Question. Let me start by asking you why you think it is so difficult for us to work together in seeking betterment, even when the situation in which we find ourselves is so threatening, even to our own well-being. Why do we disagree? Is it simply a difference in opinion? No, Richard, it's so much deeper than that. And that's, I guess, that question of why do we find working across difference and so hard is kind of, it's where I've arrived at, you know, after, you, after as you said, some decades of trying to work out how to get better outcomes from all of our all of our efforts and I think it's I think it's about uh we're going to dive straight in here right dive straight in <laughs> okay so it's very deep it's it's about our worldviews um which are really quite complex things and hard to to get a grasp on people describe worldviews in in lots of different ways and use the term to mean lots of different things so maybe if I just talk a little bit about what I mean by that and it, it's for me, it encompasses the stuff we don't know about ourselves, I think, is, is kind of the best way to put it. So there are lots of academic definitions around, you know, it's, it's my favourite academic de definition is probably Annika Hedlund-DeWitt's, which is, you know, it's ontology and epistemology and axiology and 
sociology and anthropology. All those ologies, right. All those ologies. Katie Ross, who we both know very well, would add a few few more ologies, cosmology, etc. Um, so it's, it's all of the things that drive uh, the way that we are in the world, uh, but that we very seldom uh, take out and dust off and have a look at and see how well they're working for us. So fundamentally, they're sort of beliefs and assumptions and values. Yeah. Yes, all of those rolled into one, I think. And I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to spend some spend uh, some time thinking and reading and, and writing about this, and it gave me a chance to roam a bit more widely than I had before. And and so sort of trying to pull together ideas from from learning and from systems, but also from adult development and and uh, psychology more strongly. And and it turns out that in the uh, adult development literature, there are patterns uh, in, in terms of how development happens. And so we find engaging with difference really difficult because it's, it's fundamentally challenging. And we, he, Hugh Mackay writes beautifully about that. Maybe I'll go there first. So he talks about how what happens is that we kind of set, up, set ourselves up in a cage. We don't know that we're in a cage and right. it functions in sort of the opposite way to a prison. Mm-hmm. So that what the cage does is to make us feel safe. Um, and it makes us feel safe because we can be certain within our cage and we know what's right and wrong and these are good things. Um, and when we're challenged by these things, it's like, no, ha, ha. Um, and the thing is that we have to get better at being able to being to be challenged by, by difference. And the, and the way that we do that is this thing that I call reflexiving, for want of a better term. Turns out we don't have a verb for this, Richard. That's interesting. Isn't it? In the English language. I, I do wonder whether there's, whether there's verbs for it in Indigenous languages. But it, it's this idea that we do stuff, and you're very familiar with this idea, we do stuff, we can step back a little bit and look at what we were doing, think about what we were doing, reflecting is what we call that. Seldom, um, but really important, is to take another step back, get much further back in order that you can see the broader landscape, think about how you were thinking about what you were doing. You can, you can, if there's a broader view, you might work out that actually that thing I was doing wasn't a helpful thing to be doing. I should have been over there, someplace else in the landscape. And it's not just being someplace else in the landscape. It's about what do you do when you're, when you're back here with this kind of long view? And this is where the adult development stuff comes in, because you can when we're born, there's, and this is where there's patterns across many different models that try to account for, you know, for gender differences and, and for cultural differences and so forth. And they've, they've all got sort of three levels. So when we're born, it's handy to, um, to have a single source of truth. It helps, it helps us make our way in the world a bit, a bit more easily. And that might be dad or mum or a particular kind of deity. But at some point, that idea of a singular truth falls down for most of us. And so we... we we move into a kind of a multiplicity, like a, the, the idea that you can have a truth, mine's better, but you're allowed to have a truth as opposed to there just being a singular truth. And a really small proportion of the population take a leap of faith to another way of making sense, another set of worldviews, if you like. And that's into this realm of contextual relativism, which simply means that the context determines what's valuable as a truth. And in that realm, different views all have value. So it's, it's beholden upon us to actually understand and state the context so that we don't have to be particularly aggressive about our view. We simply state it as a preface to say, well, from this context, this makes sense. But that means you really do have to know more than simply the fact of the matter. It really means that you have to know yourself, right? Going back to Socrates. That's, that's exactly it. Um, because, of course, the context will be described differently by everybody who's in it. And that's part of the fun and part of the challenge. 
So in, in some ways, we've sort of gone from a black and white world when we're really children into a, first a kaleidoscopic one where colour's all over the place through then, to use your word, patterns of colour. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have to talk them, do we? I mean, we have other no. ways of signifying meaning, I guess. We do. And, and you know, language is, is, is a marvellous thing and so terribly limiting, you know, in terms of our capacity to, um, to communicate. Because there is so much more than, than just words. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we find these lockdowns so challenging. But, yeah, it does mean that we need to be able to explore what matters to us in a richer set of ways. I often think about how, how we dismiss fillers in sentences, like, you know what I mean. Yeah. And yet, that's a profound question, isn't it? And, and if you say, no, I actually don't know what you mean, people get really <laughs> offended. Yes. And that's that same thing, because it's the idea that we see the world in the same way. So you know what I mean. You know? And in fact, of course, we cannot it is, it is literally impossible to see the world in the same way because our eyes, even if someone's standing next to me, that perspective is going to be just a little bit different. Yes. Well, I mean, many is the argument I've got into when I've said no and I say things like, you know, t tell me the context. And yes. people look at me blankly, precisely what you're saying. So they're, they're operating at, at what we might crudely call level one and level two, although they're not actually levels, they're stages. But it's the sort of notion of, when we get to this, this what do we call it, more distant rather than higher yeah. notion that yes. let me be reflexive, let me... The long view. The long view. <laughs> let me think about me in terms of the way I'm establishing the context, which might be quite different. So it's not just, what a, you know what I mean, it's do a question to me. Do I know what I mean? That's really beautiful, Richard. And, and you know, one of the, sometimes when I'm introducing that idea of doing and reflecting and reflexiving, one of the things I say is that when you're back in that, that long views position, you can see the filters that you were using when you were doing the reflecting. Yes, yes. And you can notice that you made a choice. You might not have been aware of the choice at the time, but you can notice that a choice was made and that the other choices are available. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the opportunity for us, I think. And it's tough. <laughs> it sure is. So with these insights, with these sort of uh, your own deep reflections, what, what insights can you give us about approaching climate change from the perspective of sustainability? What does it actually mean? Gosh. I'll, I'll, I'll give you half an hour to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I knew you were going to ask big questions, but, you know, that's a whopper. Um, do you know, the, the, the more I think about this stuff and try to work out what's the most useful thing I can do next, the more I think it, it comes down to having a different quality of conversations with people and trying to create situations where people feel sufficiently supported to be able to act courageously, to be a little bit vulnerable, to be a little bit courageous and to try to take that leap across to... Um, seeing what it's like in another person's shoes, because that's effectively what that contextualism means. Because it, it's only by doing what we can to see the world from a different perspective that we can start to notice what is so terribly problematic with where we are now. And, and I, I think, you know, if imagine if we had a government that was actually able to listen to women's perspectives, for example, yeah. just thinking about yeah, this good. week's news, yeah. you know? Yes. <laughs> 
And to be able to imagine what it's like to walk into a room where you are so evidently different from everybody else who's in that room and to live every day of your life knowing that the power systems that (laughs) are embedded and implicit in, in what's around us hold you back. And it's not that anybody means to necessarily. You might be in a very supported environment, but there's still so much that's implicit and not noticed, you know. So this, the question you ask about, you know, what do we do about, about climate change? What we know is that pennies add up into pounds, right? That's, that's why we've had that saying for some number of centuries. And so the things that each of us do, the choices that each of us make can be profound in and of themselves. Sure, they're tiny, of course. But all of us changing is how we've changed society since time immemorial. Yes, yes. You know, and, and so helping people to work out what they're, where they sit in this, in this scheme of things and what else they might do, what conversations they might have with the people they care about and interact with. I've always been attracted by that phrase of, of um, what we do in the world is a function of how we see it, uh, which relates to your uh, earlier comments about worldview. In other words, what we do really reflects the beliefs and assumptions that we have about various characteristics which as you say we're not conscious of uh, and then yeah. follows doesn't it if we're going to try and change the world we first need to approach the way people see it and it's always struck me that that should be the aim of education that the aim of education should <laughs> help us see the world of higher education even <laughs> uh, even that if we actually learn to see the world and recognize that there are different ways of knowing it and respect them yes. I mean b- beyond the multiplicity stuff of saying well you're right I'm right and I'm more right as you said earlier but if I actually were genuine as you say and sincere to say I really really need to understand how I see the world and how you see the world and why we differ then we might get to a different place huh? yeah Absolutely. And well, but step one is, is, is to notice that we see the world in a way that's different from others and that there is that, that kind of multiplicity. And so there's, and I guess that's why I've um, taken this, what some people think is a rather odd step of um, engaging in uh, mindfulness teacher training in this new phase of my life, having stepped down and from a formal role at the Institute. And tell me more about I'm, that. What, what, what does that mean? The mindfulness teacher training? Mm. Yeah. So I did the um, mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, course, something that John Kabat-Zinn came up with about 40, nearly 50 years ago now, um, a couple of years ago, and I found it quite fascinating. And the reason I found it quite fascinating because it was because of all of this work I've been doing around reflexivity and so forth. And in in mindfulness, in that form of mindfulness, which is a, a secular interpretation of Buddhist teachings combined with Western psychology, uh, is what underpins this particular version of mindfulness. The goal is to notice our mind and our, and our body and emotions and so forth as well. But the goal is to be able to notice what's happening. And when we can notice what's happening, we can create a little gap. And it's, it's that, that gap that allows us to craft a response rather than to simply react to what we're experiencing. And that gap is, I think, uh, the answer. Okay. <laughs> 42, I knew that all That's the time. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> or as close as we're gonna get to one, you know? One of the difficulties I have had in, in trying yeah. to do similar exercises, if you will, is yeah. that I can't stop thinking. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the, one of the things that's quite marvelous about the MBSR, it's called the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction 
approach is that because as i said there are many ideas around buddhism and around mindfulness uh, and some of them say thou shalt not think what mbsr says of course you're going to think that's what happens your mind will wander the trick is to notice that it's wandered yeah right. and then nice. gently bring it back nice. to focusing on whether you're doing a breath meditation or you know whatever kind of meditation you're doing so in fact the more your mind wanders the more you're practicing bringing it back so it's a good thing oh, if good. your mind wanders rather than it being a kind of a bad thing, if, if you will. That's wonderful. I haven't heard that interpretation before. It's... No, no. And it's, it's, so, it's so liberating <laughs> because our minds do wander. It's, it, it is what they do. It's, it's part of the condition of being human and it's okay. What uh, I find fascinating about your life and your career is you started out as an engineer, a black and white person. How have you come to this? <laughs> um, <laughs> circuitously, I think one might say. <laughs> Although, um, you know, in asking that question, you've, you've reminded me, um, a dear friend from school, you know, back in the days when you used to have 21st birthday parties, we all, so from school, we all went to uni together. This dear friend wrote on my 21st birthday card, to the most philosophical engineer I know. Ah, how lovely. There might have been an inkling. Uh, back then and there might have been an inkling in the first job that I took um, out of out of chemical engineering because there was I had options in uh, the oil industry and the mining industry but there was this new thing back in the 80s called the biotechnology industry and it was very exciting because it was like it was brand new it was booming we just discovered monoclonal antibodies that were going to cure cancer and there were no rule books uh, and I felt I'd, I'd had the opportunity to work in these other sectors the conventional sectors and it, it seemed like everything was known because, you know, it, when I worked at the Shell refinery in Sydney one summer, there was a room called the design room and the, the room was completely all completely covered in shelves and there were these ring binders, endless rows of ring binders, which had <laughs> all of the details of every single piece of kit on this entire oh, wow. refinery site of however many square kilometres, you know. And um, so I was a bit interested in, in what we didn't know even, you know, from those from those early stages. So perhaps there's something, a clue there. <laughs> and I just, you know, steadily I've moved further and further, not really away from engineering, but perhaps expanded beyond it because the the principles of chemical engineering still work for me. You know, it's the, the laws of thermodynamics are kind of handy in yes. understanding yes. how the world works. The second particularly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. You know, mass balances, energy balances, that kind of thing. They're good, right. they're good. And... You know, there's this whole other kind of um, set of ways of being and understanding in the world that that I've been steadily adding on. And I, and I, I think, you know, once I got involved in, in learning, once I uh, took up a position in the, in the tertiary sector, I think uh, that was sort of this beautiful expansion that I've just, you know, continued on ever since. Has uh, international travel been important in all of that, of actually seeing how other cultures make meaning? Yes, hugely important, hugely important. I had this uh, incredible opportunity early on. I was uh, one of the first cohort in the Ethics in Leadership program that then the St. James Ethics Centre, now just plain Ethics Centre, ran the Vincent Fairfax Ethics in Leadership program. And I would have been um, 30-ish, uh, and I had the opportunity to go to, to decide on a country in the region and to go and investigate some ethical issue uh, for a month. I went to, to Nepal, or Nepal, as I learned to say it then. And, uh, you know, being a good engineer, I had made contact with some hydro 
uh, electric engineers. They were part of a um, a Scandinavian Baptist uh, mission group who were electrifying the country in in the main. And that gave me the opportunity to to visit. It was really my first strong experience in in a developing country, I think, um, and a developing country with a very different heritage to what I was familiar with. And I think that you know gave me a passion for uh, for working in in developing countries, and just gave me, you know, I, I think one of the things I I learned most deeply then and through that Ethics in Leadership Award is the power of context, um, and the significance of context. I had one of the tasks along the way. Simon Longstaff, who still heads the Ethics Centre now was he was new in the role back then and and he we had a week with him where he gave each of us a um a philosophical question to confuse the heck out of us and and mine was about uh ends and means and whether it's okay my dad was a um was a magistrate so there's a there's a fairly clear answer from right. his perspective <laughs> about um about ends and means and it was it was through that exploration that i learned that context is is incredibly important incredibly important in and that thing about uh judging also you know coming my dear dad having that that legal training and and having every day to to make judgments so judgment was a was a fairly strong characteristic in in my upbringing and again that that context thing gave me a way to see a whole lot of grey and that probably you know set me on that path to the contextual relativism eventually some decades later. And just to perhaps clarify that that relativism simply means relative to the context not relative. That's right relative. that's right yeah yeah no not <laughs> not all things are the same but relative but but that the context is uh, preeminent in in determining truth value. I mean the more one talks about this the more extraordinary it is that we never ask these questions isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's as if it's, it's, and you said earlier, there was no verb. There are lots of things in English, I think, in any language, I guess, where there are no verbs. And so we make them up. I was just listening to my grandchildren the other day, and one of them was saying yeah. he was versing this other school. And I thought, well, that's an interesting verb. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> so there's no reason why we shouldn't make verbs. The other thing also, I think, is, you know, you said before, words like epistemology and ontology and axiology and we all have them, but we don't know we have because we don't know the words. And yet people now know epidemiology. Everybody Isn't that in the fascinating? World. Yes. And so why do we have this sort of word blindness to one word, which is almost identical to another one? I mean, it's not much difference between epistemology and epidemiology, but epistemology is a foreign word. Yeah, that's a that's a really marvelous question, and and I think um, there's where that takes us. I think Richard is is into the power of culture, and there is a obviously enormous power in culture, and there's great beauty in in culture, and sometimes great <laughs> great problems um, <laughs> in in culture as well, because because cultures set limits on what questions you're allowed to ask. You know, and, and the culture of engineering certainly sets limits, but our Western cultures set limits. And, and Descartes actually, accidentally, I, I should say, did us um, both a great service and a great disservice. Yeah. Well, if every engineer in the world was like you, then I'd be, feel very happy about the engineering profession. <laughs> but I remember being told once by an engineer that if every parliamentarian was an engineer, all the problems would be solved. Ah, yes. Well, you see, that's that's about uh, believing that you can solve problems as opposed to improving the situation, you Beautiful see. Beautiful phrase. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that point. That's just an absolutely lovely way to leave it. Cynthia, I really hope that you can come back again. We've opened up all sorts of stuff and we need to pursue them. Excellent. I've, I've had a marvellous time. Thank you, Richard. Me too. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And I hope that you will all come back again and listen to our next episode, which will happen soon. Thank you and goodbye.